Welcome to The Doctor Is Out, a podcast hosted by Dr. Sharif Akili, resident physician at Stanford Hospital and investor at Polaris Partners. Join Sharif in exploring the extraclinical practice of medicine as he interviews healthcare leaders who have gone from bedside to build companies, run health systems, spearhead public policy, and pursue many other paths where they lend their unique bedside perspectives. Our guest today is the CEO of Path AI, Dr. Andrew Beck. Today's guest, Dr. Andrew Beck, or Andy as he goes by, was a premier researcher in AI and machine learning and pathology at Harvard. He's the developer of one of the first machine learning-based systems for cancer pathology and the CEO of Path AI, one of the premier, if not the premier, pathology AI companies out there right now. While same full disclosure, Polaris is an investor in Path AI, I humbly believe you'd be really hard-pressed to dispute that any company's achieved what Andy has achieved with uh, Path AI. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Really appreciate it, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, first thing I want to say, Andy, is foremost, just really congratulations on everything you've achieved because our listeners really should know Path AI is not any old startup. After, what is it, like just five years under your direction, you've raised $255 million dollars and you just a couple months ago this past May closed 165 million Series C, and you have basically the entire world of healthcare supporting you with strategic investments everywhere. Your last round was led by Kaiser Permanente and D1 Capital Partners, and your other investors include Bristol-Myers Squibb, LabCorp, Merck's Global Health Innovation Fund. It's quite an impressive syndicate, and I think it speaks volumes to how important your work is. Thank you. Yeah, I feel very... Uh just privileged to be able to work with such a great team. And, um, and it, it's a, a huge, truly a huge uh, team effort and very, very fortunate to have such a great group, uh, which is really what's required to make a big impact in such a, such a complicated space that's touching drug development and patients and providers. Um, so we're fortunate to get to work with everyone who brings you know, expertise in all these different areas. Yeah, uh, yeah, and we're excited to go into that in a moment too. But putting a pin in that, in that context set, I'm also sort of want to share your story for our audience because I think your story, to me at least, is not only one of success, but I also think a story of courage. So, like a lot of our listeners, you started with a familiar path, Andy. You graduated from medical school at Brown in 2006, and you got a master's along the way. You did your residency and fellowship in pathology at Stanford, which you completed in 2010. And then you decided you didn't have enough education for, so for some reason you stayed on at Stanford and pursued a PhD after fellowship in biomedical informatics, which you finished in 2013. Um, and I think it's around that time you also started a career as a physician scientist at Harvard. And all that is obviously incredibly impressive. But then after that, you did something quite profound something I think would be inspiring for our listeners, which is you stepped away from it all and you, from your fancy job as faculty at Harvard in 2016 to build one of the most potentially disruptive companies in healthcare of our time. I guess with all that there, I was wondering, how'd you do that? 
I think it, well, <laughs> question, um, I guess, I don't know what, if there's any, um, any sort of common threads throughout, but I think one, one is always really pursuing what you're really passionate about, you know, at the time. And that, that, I think inevitably leads in interesting directions. And I think very, I feel very fortunate to have the ability to kind of have done that. So there's a lot, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of luck involved in being fortunate enough to really pursue what you can really be focused on and have a, hopefully a big impact on at that point in time. And, and I just mean like, I think sort of having the ability to, to go in a direction that not, you know, everyone's done in terms of machine learning and pathology and leaving to start a company, it does give you the space to do something impactful in different areas. And I would just, that'd be my advice to everyone. Like there's so many super smart people in every area, which is awesome. And, and sometimes you got to sort of find a, an, an important niche, an important area where there's not, you know, where you can have an impact um, and kind of doing that, that sort of circuitous path, I think, um, you know, has allowed me to, to be a part of organizations that can contribute in, in new ways. So I'd say, that, I don't know, that's a common thread throughout is it, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't done with any, anything in mind other than, you know, this looks like an area where someone could have an impact because there's not a ton of people already doing it. How early on were you thinking about that niche? Well, this particular niche, I mean, I've been pursuing for a while. So, I mean, I did, uh, um, my undergrad wasn't even in science and then I did medical school, but I'd say, honestly, since you mentioned I did a, or I did a master's in a, in biostatistics. So I got interested in the sort of interface of statistics and diagnostics back then. So I would say a project I did in medical, that was in medical school. So I did my, that as part of my medical school, but but early in my medical training, I actually got very interested in this particular niche. And then I let that kind of drive what I keep doing. So the reason I did a PhD was like, I really want to be good at, at biostatistics and computer science and not just be playing around with it, but to be like, feel very confident that I understand what's going on. I mean, you never feel that confident, but at least to really gain depth in this particular topic, knowing that I was also going to be gaining a lot of depth or had gained a lot of depth in this other topic, uh, pathology. <laughs> And, but I think like that actually began a long time ago, like in medical school. And then I was really just pursued both um, with a lot of um, intensity, these two very specific overlap area. And then um, when I left to start the company, it was mainly because that seemed like the instrument that was most likely to allow even more depth and even more impact in this area. So I guess it's, it's really uh, find, if you find a really interesting problem, maybe follow the problem. And I think that's kind of what I did. Were you thinking about commercialization at all early on, or is that just sort of the vehicle that sort of right before you started doing that seemed to make most sense in solving the problem you were following? Right. It's an interesting question. What What is commercialization? Which I guess mm -hmm. one way you could say is, um, is doing it in such a way that people are paying you to provide that service. And you are, you could say as an academic, you're writing grants. So every, you know, money is the currency that one needs to support any type of work, whether that is nonprofit work or research work um, and sort of the, the mode in academia, the thing you're producing is papers and insights and you're getting sort of, you need to get that work, at least in biomedicine, because that work cannot be done cheaply, uh, is supported through grants. So I feel like there you're sort of quote unquote commercialized, not, not quite the right thing because you're not 
you're not building a corporation that uh, that can uh, you know generate revenue and profits by itself. But there is some sense that you are you do have someone you're serving, and there you're serving the world of uh, of research and funders, and uh, you know trying to generate new insights. So broadly, I think like you always have stakeholders, you always have people supporting, you always have short-term and long-term objectives. Um, but I was not, to answer your question directly, thinking at all about sort of companies or forming a company until pretty recently to starting Path AI. So I would say the first five or six years of doing this, I had no, no intent of, of commercializing outside of academia. It really was driving forward the science, trying to get new insights that you could publish papers on and generate grants to then fund further work. And that was the laser focus for the first uh, PhD and beyond. I mean, we patented something as part of the PhD, but that was more, um, you know, the folks at Stanford were like, why don't you patent this? We had no real intent of starting a company around it or even really didn't, I was not involved in trying to license anything. So only really uh, went, went from essentially zero to 100% when starting the company in 2016. So how did you approach that? Because I feel like the most common model probably is for a physician scientist to have a lab and then they spin out something and they have somebody else run it. But you, you just, you're the CEO. You, you yeah. are an executive as much as you are a researcher, as much as you are a physician, um, going through or incredibly more. complex <laughs> business development <laughs> questions. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm actually way more that. It, like the actual job I'm here. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, the job's changed. So yeah, there's different models. And I think it really depends on what you're building, what the discovery is, what you're commercializing. I think a lot of people make the mistake of choosing a particular path without even knowing they're making a choice. Like you're saying, a lot of people mm -hmm. do that. I think that's what people do in terms of, um, I think there's certain models where I'm sure that makes a ton of sense. Like if you have some huge breakthrough on a specific molecular novel entity that you discover in your lab and it makes sense to license it to a biotech or a pharma company who can truly take the next steps for making it into a medicine that could then go into clinical trials. And then you could have an engine that just keeps coming up with these novel things that you could then spin out truly. And then that thing is picked up and taken the next step. That's really not how Path AI has ever formed. I don't even, I mean, the, the term spin out doesn't even uh, apply in my opinion, because usually you picture the, the really valuable kernel is truly spun out. And then it's just a matter of, you know, getting the, the business people to turn it into a, uh, an impactful product that will be profitable. Whereas here it really was like building a technology driven company from the ground up. So you know, it's all about the people, it's all about the software and the technology and all of that was built from the ground up de novo from within the company. And it, it was co-founded with my co-founder Aditya Kosla who also left the work he was doing. He finished his PhD at MIT and left and we started the company. And it was very much not a spin out in the sense that something's being spun out. It was like, you know, starting from the ground up with with a pretty clear vision of, of where we wanted to go in terms of AI powered pathology being able to, to go from zero in the future to 100% of how much pathology is supported by, uh, by digitization and artificial intelligence. So, so the for you- was there, but all the specifics mm -hmm. were built from the ground up. Yeah, so for you back in 2016, was it not a difficult choice to, to make the decision to leave academia and start this company? Did it make a lot of sense for you or were you struggling through that question at all? Yeah, no, it was definitely a difficult choice. Absolutely. Um, mainly because there's a lot of uncertainty when you start a company. I mean, now it seems sort of obvious or could seem obvious, and but 
in um, when you're really starting with nothing, like in the basement of my of my uh, condo with like three people because we had someone who joined right you after get paid me. like a resident again you know it's like paid it all yeah i mean there's <laughs> money there's uh so yeah it's the uh, sort of uncertainty at the beginning is real in terms of how much courage is really required i mean i think it's 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 good to take it out of of this sort of uh overconfidence, over fear, to just try to be really objective and think through what would the upside look like in say three different scenarios and what would the downside look like? And which which scenario do you wanna pick based on that? And if you do that sort of game in this case, and I think true in a lot of cases, why I think people should form companies, the upside is often a whole lot higher and the downside is often not all that much lower. So the good thing, at least for the position I was in, and like I said, I feel super fortunate, but like, if this thing totally blew out after a year or two, I would just do some, find something else to do. Like I was like, not everyone has that luxury, but like most, many people do and don't realize it. So when you like start a company, if it fails, I think at least you started something, at least you tried something. And I think people are pretty, um, pretty attentive to that. And then so much of what you're actually judged on is how good you are in the present. How well do you perform the interviews? Do you know a lot about the company or the academic institution you're doing? You know, even if you are in a company, you could probably still write a paper or something. Like, how productive have you been in the last three months? Like, so much of it is the present, and I think sometimes the the weight of the past gets, uh, and the and the fear of loss is far exaggerated. So yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I had a good colleague who described it sort of like you know people who are just incredibly overtrained. <laughs> we we sort of um, are lucky to we should be the last risk averse people in the world. Cause if anybody could take on risk and do something crazy, it would be people, totally. I mean, physicians like Rushika had mentioned this, like you sort of have your job at the end of the day, you aren't, you aren't gonna go hungry, but um, it's still very, very, very terrifying. Um, did you, when you were first starting, did you have anybody, any naysayers, any discouraging, um, discouragement from anybody who looked at you as a research scientist and not as a company builder or, or did you have any experience in company building at that time George just trying to think about what yeah other residents or research scientists might encounter if they were to think about pushing themselves outside their comfort zone and yeah. how to navigate that no it's really hard and certainly lots and lots of naysayers and often those are the people you learn the most from like if you pick your actually going to teach you something, it's typically only the naysayers who will teach you something, or at least people being critical. If everyone's like, oh, awesome, great idea. You're like, thanks, but you don't learn anything. So I think it's, I think learning from your naysayers is extremely valuable because in every case, almost every case, you're going to have a lot of them. And there's a lot of really smart people out there, like investors, people who have seen companies succeed and they've seen a lot of companies fail. So I think it's having the, um, to me, the key to success is, or whatever, I don't know, key to success, but my advice I would give someone like you mentioned was first have this sort of confidence that you'll be able to learn something. And that like, if you spend six months trying to learn something hard, you can learn a lot about your topic, which could be like, you know, not that many people have started companies. I mean, some people have, but sometimes you picture, oh, the business people know everything about business, but like business is super vague and the questions are pretty basic and the solutions are very hard. I mean, the, the question is like, how is this gonna help patients and how is that gonna turn into a company that can 
they can make money to continue to grow kind of thing. Like sometimes there's like two questions and then it's like really understanding the market. Have people tried this and failed? How, what can I learn from them? Have people tried this and succeeded in a slightly adjacent market? How can I learn from them? So there's like a set of things that anyone who's interested and willing to put in the time can put together. And then it's like proposing things to a lot of people. And it's fine, particularly if you have a, a, a full-time job, you're like, oh, I have some ideas I've been thinking about on the side. Give me your feedback and send that to 20 people. You'll probably get, you know, 10 good ideas. And then you have V2 and then you send V2 to people. And there's this real iterative process from learning from your naysayers. And, but don't take the sort of personal critique. Like sometimes you get these personal things like you are a physician. What do you know about physics? That's just pointless because all of us have many, many different sort of things we can be good at inside of us. And like pigeonholing people into what they happen to have done first in the sequence of their career doesn't make any sense because, you know. I love that. It makes a lot of sense. Um, Eddie, I wanted to ask a little bit. Um, I think it would be cool if you could share a bit about your research at the time that you were doing before you started the company and how you specifically thought about commercializing it. If you have anything to share on that. Yeah, absolutely. So I was working like a lot of people are in academia across a number of different areas. One was like statistical methods for identifying gene expression signatures to better identify um, different patient subsets or patients who may have different prognosis or response to therapy. Like there's a bunch of research that people are doing in that area. We did some of it and um, it was fine, but it wasn't like super uh, impactful to the field, I would say in all, uh, in all honesty, um, <laughs> which is a lot of things. But the one thing we were doing that really was, and that turned into you know the, the same domain that we focus on at Path AI is, I've been working since my uh, PhD on, you know, can you train computers to better interpret images to provide useful information for understanding cancer or identifying prognostic biomarkers? And um, in my research lab, we started using deep learning for uh, some applications in pathology beginning around 2015 or so, or 2016, and, and very quickly seemed like, oh, this, this is working pretty well. And then uh, we took part in a competition right around the time of Path AI forming and actually won this international competition. And like, it was really interesting because there were about five or six people using deep learning and maybe 30 people not. And like all of the leading entries were deep learning based systems and we happened to win, but it was obvious at the time. And I've been doing this sort of been in this field for like a decade. So I'd seen what the systems are capable of over time, and I knew what all the products in the market could do because when you're doing academia, you got to know what's out there and utilize it if it's useful. So it was um, it was a really big moment in the field, and for me personally, that like okay, I've been waiting, and now this is finally ready. And it was yeah, our work was good, but there was a number of other teams who were good. It's like this is really really good, where you can in an automated fashion identify like single cancer cells. Um, on images and we were just getting started. So we saw in this competition that our error rate was like 92% uh, when the competition's first ending was, and we were in first place, but then we were like competing with this other team who kept getting better because they like, kept the competition open for like three more months. And by the end of it, we ended up winning again, but now we're at, like 99.5% accuracy. And if you picture humans haven't gotten better, you know, in 50 years or something arbitrarily, but they haven't gotten better in the past few decades at interpreting images and to see a computational system reduce its error rate by like 90% error reduction in like three months. It's like, okay, if we build a company, get all the data, like this is gonna work. And because I'd been in the field of pathology for 
a long time, like it was clear with the commercial or, you know, you could say commercial, you could say real patient impact, but just the real impact in the world could be, and that that impact could not be realized in academia. There's just no resources to, to really make it happen, to build products. So it was, so I feel in some way lucky that there was a very sort of seminal event that took out the technology risk. And sort of just because of my background, there's obviously always business risks, but at least I kind of knew what they were because there's a lot of particularities in the uh, pathology market that have That's to be done. That's so cool. Yeah. I feel like it's also inspiring because I feel like your story is incredibly meritocratic. There's a straight up uh, a, a competition and the person who has been working and putting his life into this, who understands it, has been rewarded by the market to lead and usher this change. So that's that's awesome to me. I, I think that's encouraging um, uh, when it feels like the field of healthcare can be very nebulous and totally. challenging. Totally. I there's so many, um, what I think too, I like too that it's actually about something that, I mean, there's meritocratic maybe for me, but even more importantly, there's meritocratic for the best like having data to support what's the best diagnostic system. And honestly, a lot of things in medicine don't have that. People are considered experts in various fields due to reputation or it's very rarely data-driven. So it's actually nice to convert this field that's um, like everything else, typically not easy to evaluate, you know, is pathologist A any different than pathologist B? Um, but you can actually do that with algorithms and then you can compare the algorithms to the pathologists. And yeah, I actually think it puts on a much more scientific data-driven basis, the whole medical specialty, which I agree with you is uh, unusual to be able to do it. And one, one exciting thing about sort of diagnostic fields is you kind of can do that. Um, that's, so, yeah. that's really interesting. That's insightful. Yeah, that, that explains uh, sort of how, where the meritocracy can exist and where it might I think know, be challenging going. to find. Yeah, totally. So really give it data basis and data. I mean, that's what patients care about most too. Yeah. Where do you think the future of AI machine learning and pathology will be, Andy? Do you think, yeah. I ask this a little facetiously, do you think you'll ever put yourself out of a clinical job? <laughs> uh, um, no, but it's a good question. Where is it going in pathology? I mean, I think what I'm seeing a lot of this overall, um, Building really robust generalizable models like is hard and takes a lot of work. So I think we've seen some a lot of publications on sort of low-hanging fruit, some of which we've been involved in. But I think we're sort of in the um, second stage now where it's really building super robust generalizable models that deal with all of the real-world complexities. And where's it going? I think the technology and the data sets to make that happen are, are getting more and more mature. Uh, we're seeing better and better products that are coming out. Uh, regulators, you know, are excited for these new technologies to be incorporated to make uh, diagnoses that are more accurate, more reproducible, and in some cases more predictive than uh, historical ones. So I just think we've sort of seen the, the technology works and now there's this exciting period of really scaling it into the best products. And then I think this will become absolutely routine in every aspect of drug development from preclinical to early clinical trials to late stage trials to companion diagnostics programs. Um, and then in the real world, I think every single patient, you know, at, in the end that is having a microscopic slide made will benefit uh, from having the pathologist be augmented by AI. I think that's a pretty uncontroversial prediction. 
And I think it's also uncontroversial that patients will really want this and that payers will also want this, particularly for things like serious diagnoses like cancer and others. Um, so I think we're definitely heading to a future where this is ubiquitous in drug development as well as in clinical care. So thinking about all of that, you know, I think this also comes down to, because this technology is so profound um, and there are so many parties that are interested in it and there's value to so many parties. I think your strategic investors sort of reflect that. Um, how do you think about focusing in on a business model? Like, have you ever found you need to work actively to keep the company's incentives aligned and minimize com conflicts among different partners? You know, it, it, there's, there, obviously, I think the, the obvious one is like physicians adopting this, a patient sort of wanting this for a particular, you know, clinical needs. There's pharma companies, there's payers. Um, how, how have you thought about that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, one is it's, it's really important. And I think maybe other digital health, it reminds me, I think an earlier point question you said about how, I don't know, things, things are complicated or, or meritocratic. There are, I feel like there's a lot of digital health startups where it's in a way harder, like if you're just optimizing billing, like, is that really helping patients? It may be as successful as a tool because it's gonna help, uh, you know, people bill more money, but like <laughs> practices and changing, I mean, it's gonna help the people using your product. It's not clear it's going to help payers. It's not clear it's going to help the population overall. I'm just giving like an abstract example, but sure, sure. I do think it's actually really important to think about that. And I feel very fortunate that we're trying to solve a very particular problem as well as we can. And as long as we focus on like the patient at the end of it, so who wants, you know, most accurate, most reproducible and most predictive in terms of enriching for responders for the work we do in drug development, that that really does help keep us focused on what's most important and all these organizations in some way are all trying to to serve patients so i think really focusing on them as the the true arbiter of value uh is really important and i think has driven a lot of the work work we've done for example i think it's more important to focus on improved patient outcomes and to focus on you know allowing a pathologist to do a full day's work um, in two hours less time than they would otherwise, because that's not really an impactful patient problem. I mean, it, it will make a small subset of physicians, maybe, you know, 15,000 of, of all the physicians in the country or 20,000 of all the physicians in the country, like improve their lives. But you really want to focus on what's going to matter for patients. I mean, and that's what we've done. And yeah, we need different business models in particular, different ways of working with our partners in different aspects of drug development. We have different types of projects. When we go clinical, uh, we will also, I mean, sometimes there's existing business models for how clinical services are provided, existing reimbursement frameworks and billing right. codes. And then when we partner with labs, there'll be certain, you know, we have to come up with um, and have come up with relationships that really benefit both parties. And there's sort of creativity that has to happen to make everyone, um, it's sort of the interests of the stakeholders we're working with, but definitely our sort of North star is on, does this really make a difference for patients? And we really try to focus our applications on those areas. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think that that, that really probably is the only way you can navigate all this. C curious, have you encountered yet or is it premature any data privacy uh, questions or um, problems as you've been building this out? Yeah, no, absolutely. So that's, I mean, we have a, it's a big priority for us. We have a, we have a, a large internal 
set of resources and team focused on data security and integrity and compliance with different regulations for different types of data and different geographies. Um, and we work, you know, with all of the partners we work with, there's always a, a big consideration for data privacy, data ownership, compliance, um, security. So yeah, it's never been more important. I feel lucky in a way too, that we are pretty much like digital native, you know, HIPAA and things like that were very um, native to us from day one, that these are really serious things versus companies or healthcare providers or who didn't have to think about this and had to sort of bolt it on at the end. For us, it's been kind of a, a, a big priority from the beginning. And it's, a lot of it's the type of work we do. I mean, we do a lot of work on clinical trials, a lot of work with global pharmaceutical companies. So there's a lot of complexity uh, for navigating effectively um, to be able to really support that work. Amongst all these challenges, and I feel like it's very exciting I feel excited for you to to navigate this these new areas. Is there one thing that keeps you up at night, or one thing that you find the most um, tricky problem to solve in getting this product to patients? Um, yeah, I would say the one thing that keeps me up at night. Um, I mean, there's one, like the most serious one is like this first do no harm. So it's being like incredibly um, paranoid about biases that you could have in your models, error modes that you're not accounting for. Um, how could this go wrong is the biggest, most important concern. Because I mean, our whole thing, how do we improve patient outcomes? Uh, you wanna make sure you're not making anything worse. So like I said, part of that is identifying things where there's already a problem, like there's a ton of variability. And then it's just being really rigorous on quality and the quality of the code, the documentation, the, the rigorous validation, the, you know, testing the generalizability. So the biggest risk to patients would be these, these systems not working as well as, as we think they do. So, I mean, that's a top company priority above all else. The other that's, you know, more of like a business practical concern, not as important as that, which is for all of these things, and I say this about every startup, it's about getting the timing right, which I actually think we kind of have, but uh, you don't want to be too soon and you don't want to be uh, too late to where you could really provide value and have an impact. So um, a lot of what we think about is which, which market, which part of the markets, which applications are really ready for this to just take off and to really make improvements versus, you know, which ones could we be, you know, three years ahead and three years is a big deal. So uh, in a company's life. So I think this sort of dealing with the external forces outside of the company, making sure we're staying really informed on, you know, how the world is changing and where it can bring the most value to ensure we're more prioritizing uh, the right things in the right sequence. Yeah, that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Pivoting a little bit, and just taking stock, reflecting on these past five years, what was it like being a first-time CEO, and could you see yourself doing this again? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the... The beginning, the job is just so different. So the one thing is it's always changing my job at many people's job in the company. It's changing so much over time. Um, I think the first, the beginnings, the beginning might be the hardest. I mean, in some sense, you have the, you have the most, uh, the least support from other people. Um, and uh, I think what's nice is, you know, learning from your mistakes and like at times you feel more confident in what you're doing, but then, um, 
yeah, often, you know, it's good also to get, get knocked off your horse or whatever and realize, oh my gosh, I could be doing this so much better because the set of responsibilities and complexities also increase over time. So I think sort of keeping an even keel is really important. And um, yeah, and I think the, the thing I've learned sort of how I've gotten some uh, comfort with it is just this sort of mindset that it really does change throughout and there's not one thing. So the idea of like CEO, like it's super variable job. And I think it, you have to be comfortable or even like that um, huge variability and have some sort of flexibility to uh, to sort of do what's required at the point in time. And what's required is what, what are, is required from the outside, what's required to say from your investors and your customers, and then what's required from who you've built up around you. So like what, where are their gaps in the team? So it's, it's probably one of the most fungible roles on a day-to-day basis in any way, because you really just have to, to fill in kind of where needed while at the same time making sure the company is headed in the right direction in terms of long-term strategy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I asked this question actually just um, in our last episode to the CEO of the Kaiser Permanente Medical Group. And I think it's a fitting question for you because you've, you've had these different roles um, culminating to this experience. Do you think there's been a superpower you've had that's allowed you to be successful through everything, through being a clinician, a researcher, an entrepreneur, um, through leading people now? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, I guess there's probably been different levels of success in each one, but I think for this role, like not like also being very honest about what you're really good at, what you're medium at, what you're not very good at, um, is always useful. I think the ability to really prioritize surrounding yourself with great people, I mean, and let them do as much as they can. I, I think that's been particularly in this role. It really, um, is critical and really, uh, you get value, like huge value out of doing it, like probably not so much in academia or in medicine. So I think at least what I've learned here, it's this idea of what, whatever it takes to build the best team and be so supportive because it really is a, a hugely multiplicative exponential, something that like couldn't, I could never do, you know? So it's this ability to really like, not just say it jokingly, but to actually do it, to, to surround yourself with the best possible people and, you know, align everyone around a common, uh, mission, which people are often drawn to anyway, but it's making sure we get the right people and then really letting them be as effective as possible. And then this idea of being kind of flexible um, as the, like being comfortable with things changing a lot and there being some uncertainty. There's a lot more uncertainty in the beginning, but there's always amounts of uncertainty is also really important. So I don't know, flexibility, sort of true collaboration and kind of humility that you bring to the collaboration. Um, and then just ability to adapt quickly and to try to stay ahead of ahead of all the changes, see them, see the problems hopefully before or just as they arise. Yeah, you know, there's um, at HPS, there's uh, at in the one of the big strategy courses. Actually, it's based off of theory that Clay Christensen, um, who's one of the big um, thinkers and professors uh, in business strategy. There's this concept of being a type or level five leader where the level five leader is one who has ultimate humility. And I definitely think you embody that. Like the, the pinnacle of leadership is being able to truly access and tap into that humility, understand where you need support. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, can, I can attest to that. I mean, <laughs> this terms the humility bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's a good thing. It's a great thing, Andy. Um, for my second last question, 
I wanted to ask, just in case you might have any thoughts, uh, for our listeners who might be pathology residents or clinician scientists, would you have any advice for them um, if you were to just reflect back? Yeah. So, um, well, for pathology residents, it's a, I think there's never been a more exciting time to be in pathology because I think we, we are going to be seeing the sea change. And like anything, it's going to take real innovators or people from within pathology to drive the change and leaders to really, nothing changes really from the outside. Uh, a lot of it has to happen from the inside. So I think there's never been a more exciting time with this big opportunity. Now the technology is quite mature. So I encourage people to go into it and then to just you know figure out how can they help design the trials, design the studies, start implementing this technology because we are going to see this field transform over the next decade broadly. And you know I think being a driver of that will be a really rewarding uh, place to be. That'd be one for sort of folks thinking about pathology and then broadly kind of clinical scientists. Um, uh, what would I advise? Um, yeah, just, I mean, like, I don't know, random things I would say is like, focus on a small number of impactful things versus lots of little things that don't matter. I think the biggest thing is there's just so much little clinical research that that is not even done with the intent of being impactful. It's done more with the intent of, uh, you know, getting a new publication or something. So I don't know, I just think fewer bets on on a small number of potentially really transformative things can have a huge impact. And I guess from my own experience that like certain, if you pick an important problem, it's really rewarding to stick with it a long time. I mean, I feel like I've done that. And I know a lot of people have done that. Sometimes you just keep learning more and more. And uh, I do think there's sort of compounding value to uh, a single problem, but like always learning more and more, more depth you can apply to it. Um, so. So yeah. kind of like the opposite that's, of jumping from one little thing, you know. That's fantastic advice. That's fantastic advice. And I think it's good advice at any stage of your career. For my last question, it's a question we ask, um, we've been asking all our guests. And it's simply that, is there anything that you might have encountered recently that you've enjoyed? It could be a book, an article, a TV show, a song, a movie, another podcast, whatever. Is there anything you came across recently that you found interesting that you might recommend? Um, let me see. Let me check my uh, what I've been listening to lately. I know I totally put you on the spot, but it can be anything. No, I like that. that anything. Um, it could be a song, yeah. I uh, I've been enjoying to say something random. I've been enjoying the waking up uh, meditation app. I think that's a my recommendation. Oh. A good combo of. Uh, Lots of interviews, material theory, as well as these uh, interesting meditations. And I think um, I think I've I've gotten a lot of value out of it, and think there's a lot of super interesting stuff in it. That's so cool! I have to check it out. I learned so much through these questions. They're they're there great. Well, Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and share your perspective. This was really insightful. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was, it was great to talk to you. That does it for this episode of The Doctors Out. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support us, please leave a review on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast platform you use. And if there's something you found you really liked or didn't like or would like to make a suggestion, feel free to reach out by email at info at tdio.org.